Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Question, Episode 3. This is a podcast where we ask important questions to build future leaders so that they can go and build better futures. Uh, my name's Arun. If this is the first episode you've caught for us or with us, uh, welcome. The Last Question is an ongoing project, just like anything else in life, uh, and it is and it will always remain a work in progress. I would encourage you uh, to go back and listen to episodes one and two and the first of our Monday meditation series called Lead Your Week. Uh, we've got three episodes out now in total. This is number four, number three of our regular Thursday release. Uh, and today is going to be something a little bit different. So another reason why I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the first two, those are more what you'll come to expect or what you should hopefully come to expect from the last question. Today, uh, it's going to be something you might consider a bit self-indulgent. Uh, so as, as an enabled word project, that's what this podcast is part of, um, I'm going to use today, this week, as an opportunity to explain uh, another big project that I've been working on, that we've been working on for a long time, really for two years, but definitely the better part of the last three or four months. And that is our coaching programs. So if you have caught any previous episodes of The Last Question, or you followed us anywhere on social media, Facebook and Instagram primarily, you've probably uh, seen me make mention of Enabled Leader or Leaders of Influence, two coaching programs that we've been working on, that we've been building, and that we launch today. April 1st, 2021. So by the time you listen to this, our programs will be live, open for enrollment, um, and we would love to talk with you and answer your questions. And so at the end of this show, I will put out the link. I'll put out the link to the calendar also where you can book a call and ask all the questions you'd like to of me and um, see if the program is right for you. But I thought it would be best especially if, even for those people who have been kind of looking for a while, watching for a while, waiting to see what the program was going to entail. I think it's only fair that I give you a little bit more detail, a little bit of a look behind the curtain, if you will, before you jump on a call and have to create all sorts of questions for yourself, right? At the very least, I can try to answer the, some of those questions ahead of time. So we've, we put a couple of posts out on Facebook and Instagram. My subscribers got a, an email this morning with a little bit of information, but um, really, I just want to take a few minutes, go into what these programs are, go into why we're doing this in the first place, hopefully answer some of those um, first and second order questions. And then that way we can have a much deeper conversation on our discovery call when we connect later on. So if you did catch episode one, I told the story of Enabled Word, which is pretty well interwoven with my own story. Uh, I am coming off of 13 years of military experience, spent most of that time really teaching and training and trying to find a way to develop leaders in an environment that was, well, highly dysfunctional, for the lack of a better term. And it wasn't really the fault of any individual. It, it wasn't any one person, any one leader or manager or supervisor, uh, or even any one set of leaders that set us on that course. But in our world, we were, I'm a nuclear weapons guy, or I was, and we inherited the legacy of Curtis LeMay and the Strategic Air Command. And if you've never read any of the history, it's, it's interesting, right? Even if you're not a history buff, hit up Wikipedia, look at some of the stuff. 
Um, but one of the things that made SAC unique or special, maybe depending on your perspective, is that it relied heavily on fear. And the nuclear ops community I entered in 2008 relied heavily on fear. We took tests three times a month uh, and the, the testing standard, the passing standard was 80%, 90%. No, 80%. The fact that I'm even confusing, it's part of the problem, I think, and part of the, part of the message. Back in that day, you had to score an 80%. If you scored below a 90, in most cases, you were counseled by somebody senior to you, you got a talking to. In some places, if you scored below a 100%, you got a talking to. If, if you think that sounds weird because 100% is a perfect score, then maybe it makes sense uh, or makes less sense to you if I told you that every single day we were reminded perfection is the standard. Perfection is the standard. Well, if you're anything like me, you understand that perfection is not possible, right? And if you're anything like any other human on the earth, you understand perfection is not possible, right? We cannot be perfect. 100% of the time, we always fall short somewhere. As a husband and a father, I fall short all the time. As a leader of airmen, as a teacher, as a professor at a university, I fall short of my students' expectations all the time. The number one goal any of us should have, at least professionally and certainly personally, if you have kids or you have a spouse or significant other, if you have someone else who's relying on you, the number one goal shouldn't be perfection. It should simply be better than yesterday. Be better than you were yesterday. And, and if that sounds tough to handle, tough to manage, tough to grasp on, well, yeah, it is. Leadership generally is a tough thing to grasp, but it's not complicated. It's just difficult. But, there are, but these are two different things, right? Leadership is simple. Leading is difficult. And, and hopefully that'll make more sense. What I'm saying will make more sense as I go. So anyway, in the nuclear community, three tests a month, you, you'd spend all your time, well, you'd spend your time studying for these tests. Ultimately, a, a small set of us figured out a way to get around that by cheating on these tests. And it kind of blew up. 2014, our, our community went through a big overhaul. We hit the news, we hit the media, right? Senior people got fired. And it all came back to culture. And so one of the driving forces behind that culture, behind a very heavy, very high pressure compliance culture was metrics. What can you measure? So one of my mentors, a coach that I've worked with for a while now, um, and, and he's a well-known business coach in his own right. He said something to me that I thought was quite profound. And so as much as I'd like to steal it, I definitely won't. But he said, management is the measurement of people and processes. Leadership is the development of people and processes. So I, I realized over time, especially in my first assignment, as I was starting to gain responsibility for other people and other things, I started to realize that it, it's very easy to look at test scores. It's very easy for me to have looked at a deputy of mine or somebody who worked with me and to say, you know, you scored a 92, a 93 and a 93 the last three months. You're not hitting the mark. I need you at 95 or above. 
or to look at your record and say 97, 97, 5, 99, you're trending up and you're getting really close to that 100%, but you're still missing a question here or there. Why is that? Even somebody who's scoring in excess of 95, whose trend line is positive, I can still find something wrong with you. And that's not to say there's always, that's not to say there's no room for improvement. There's always room for improvement. I get all that. I, I made those arguments for years and I spent a lot of time focusing on the negative because, hey, we've always got to fix the, the problems and fix the glitches. But what that says to people and what I learned the hard way that I was saying to people was everything is important. So let me, let me try to put these two things together. So we would do, we would spend a lot of time and energy worrying about these test scores. We went into our simulators and we would try to train everything, but only to a surface level because you had to know everything. You had to know everything and be ready for anything. But there's only so many hours in the day, only so many days in a week and only so many months in a year. And so what that led to was a situation where we would train you on every possible scenario, but only an inch deep and only really one variation of that scenario. So after 12 months, you would have seen quote unquote everything, but it only came to you in, in one version. The scenario only played out in one way. We spent all our time worrying about test scores, and what your performance was in a training event, in a simulator ride. Training, which is the place where you make mistakes and learn and get better, but actually how you performed in training was a metric that we used to promote you, to move you into competitive positions. The way you performed in training, by definition, the way you performed in the place where you should have been able to show your weakness to go through the pain, to ask all the questions and to learn. It wasn't a learning environment, it was a test. So then by the time you stepped into an evaluation, which was a test, you walked into the simulator and for four hours or what became two hours, we threw stuff at you and you just had to react to it and you didn't get help, you were being tested. But those environments were then the highest pressure because they were a test and you didn't have any help. And we also use those to determine whether you were promoted or progressed or moved to a competitive position. So all together, and, and I know I'm also kind of being vague, right? I, I want to make sure, I want to try to, I don't want to go so far into the weeds that, that most of our listeners lose us. If, if you've worked in nuclear ops, I know there's friends of mine that are listening to this podcast that have listened to previous episodes. You know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, this is the nugget I would say you focus on, right? Because you don't need to know all the detail about what it's like to live in the missile world and, and to do ICBM stuff. It was a cool job. I, I really did enjoy it. I definitely don't regret it. But this is the nugget I want you to key in on. If everything is important, nothing is important. I can't take ownership of that either. It certainly is pithy. And I think it absolutely applies to a lot of places in our lives. We, we get into work, we get into a workplace and we are on fire. We are motivated to do some good. And especially if we are a first time supervisor 
or into a management position where now we are responsible for other managers, other leaders. We've got people looking to us for guidance. We have a vision about where we want to go. Even the company, even my new boss said, hey, we're bringing you into this job. This team needs help, but we, we need you to really think about where is this team going to be a year from now? What do you guys want to be accomplishing a year from now? Or even six months from now, even a month from now, maybe the team is in, in such a state that just to be successful a year from now is a huge step. But regardless, it takes vision, it takes strategic thinking, and it takes a good amount of mental energy just to picture what that next step is going to look like. If you're in a leadership position, if you're in a position where people are looking to you for guidance, for vision, you should not be spending your time worrying about their to-do lists. You should not be spending time worrying about how long it's taking them to accomplish a task. You should not be following up with them every day, every week. Hey, how's this task coming? Hey, are you going to get it done on time? Hey, if, if you're not, you need to ask me for an extension. Okay, great, boss. It's, we're a week away from the deadline. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Okay, if, if you've been on the receiving end of that question, I'm, I'm guessing you were pretty annoyed by it. I know I've been in the past. If you're the one asking that question, take a minute and ask yourself, why? Why do you feel compelled to dig in that far? to get bogged down in the weeds? Is it because you're trying, you're worried about it? Or is somebody above you, around you, worried about it? If everything is important, nothing is important. So I, I learned this lesson the hard way along with plenty others. If I come at you every day with a new set of tasks, and then we have a couple of meetings and then I meet you at the water cooler or I meet you in the hallway on the way to lunch. And then I add a couple more tasks to your to-do list. And then by the end of the day, let's say there's 11 tasks on your list and you've gotten four done. Well, you know that I'm going to add two or three to the end of the list at the end of the day. And then you're going to come in. Maybe you disconnected at home away from work. I mean, I hope so. But if you're anything like me, you didn't because you knew that when you got to work the next day, the list would only continue to grow. But in addition to me adding things to your list, I now have everything on your list on mine, plus the stuff that my boss gave me. It is a never ending cycle. I'm not saying to do lists are evil. I'm not saying maintaining a task list is evil. I maintain a to do list. I have gone through probably hundreds of different organizational systems to try to figure out the thing that worked best for me. But when I look at all those systems and I look at all my previous experiences and, and I look at what I've taught others and what has worked the best, I realize that the more complicated you make it, the more likely it is to fail. So that's where a naval leader comes from. The, the most formative leadership experiences I had in the military came from a decision that I had to make, and I didn't come to the realization myself, I had mentors and a couple of great leaders in my corner who helped me see the right call at the right time. 
but the most formative and most rewarding experiences did not come from micromanagement. It did not come from being a taskmaster. It did not come from constantly asking for status updates and information and more information. It didn't come from any of that. I didn't feel fulfilled from those scenarios. And I'm, and I'm telling you the times when I was the micromanaging taskmaster, my team, my airmen, my folks, my people did not feel fulfilled either. Not to mention they didn't feel trusted. They certainly didn't feel empowered. They just felt watched. My most formative and rewarding leadership experiences came when I got rid of all of that nonsense and I let go. Ultimately, there are three things that you need to do to lead effectively, and none of them have anything to do with task lists, to-do lists, calendars, meetings, status updates, none of it. All of that stuff can be useful. Outlook is a great tool, but I tell you what, Outlook is a double-edged sword. There are three things you need to do to lead effectively, and to be the kind of leader that your team needs you to be, where you are engaged, but out of their way. Number one, get straight on what matters to you. This allows you to set priorities. So if you've been to the website, the website is live also today, April 1st, coaching.enabledlead.com. But on the website, the first thing I point out is that people don't know what they stand for. And I'm not, and it's not because we're bad people. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because I'm a bad person. It's because we haven't taken the time to ask ourselves what matters most? What do we value? I want to be a leader of integrity, number one. Integrity is easily defined as doing right when no one's looking. And that's the answer we get most, most often when we're interviewing people, right? What does integrity mean to you? Doing right when nobody else is looking. Okay, great. But there's another piece to leading with integrity that I think is really important to talk about. I will never ask someone to do something I'm not willing to do. And I will never ask someone to do something that does not align with my value or the organization's values. So I'll give you an example. And this one might get touchy. For those of you uh, in the Air Force crowd, either current or former, this one might get touchy and that's okay. I haven't, I haven't been open with this one much just because, well, it gets touchy. Uh, so the Air Force, just like every military service, every year expects its supervisors to write performance reports. Uh, you might know them as fitness reports or fit reps, performance appraisal, same kind of thing. Requires us to write them every year uh, on the people we supervise on paper, right? So you might be leading a large number of people, but perhaps your direct reports on paper might only be two or three. It could be nine or 10 and, and anywhere in between. So we write a performance report. And in addition, if we want to nominate them for a special award, for a quarterly award, for an annual best team of the year, something like that, we write an awards nominating package, which is really just a single form with a bunch of bullet statements on it that, that says 
all the things they've done and how many millions of dollars they saved in this program and all that kind of stuff. What you, what you learn about as you prepare to enter the Air Force, so for instance, if you're preparing to be an officer, which at the end of the day is a people position, officers are there to lead people and to mentor. If you're going into the military as an officer, you will learn how to write these reports, how to write these awards. There are unwritten rules behind how to write these things. There's different language you use abbreviations that you would never see in any other written document ever. Um, it's almost a different language, right? It, but you kind of, it's frustrating, but you get past it because you're taking care of your people. You're showing what kind of work they're doing. Yes, it, it sucks to write a performance report on someone who's not performing, but that's balanced out by you getting to write your number one performer's performance report and then pushing them for an award and seeing them do great things and, and ultimately seeing them exceed the standard you met when you were in their position. Because that's what we're doing, right? Leadership's about nothing but building a replacement and making that replacement better than you were. So anyway, you learn about writing these reports and then you get into active service, you get to a unit somewhere and you quickly realize that the unwritten rule you weren't yet taught was that you actually write your own most of the time. And I've navigated this differently depending on where I've been and I'll spare you the gory details. But when I first learned that, I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I write my own award? Like I'm not going to nominate myself for an award. That's dumb. And why would I write my own performance report? I can't assess myself. I can't rank myself against my peer. That doesn't make any sense but that's the way a lot of people do it. Their supervisors make them write their own reports and their own awards. Hey, you want to win this award? You'll write the package yourself. Well, I'd, I'd appreciate recognition, but I'm not going to nominate myself for an award. But a lot of people are put into that position. So what is that story meant to illustrate? For me... Leading from a position of, an integ of integrity, leading as someone with integrity is about doing the tasks expected of me, that my team expects of me, period, even if it means more work for me. It also means, on the flip side, not doing the work that I don't think is appropriate for me. And it always has made my decision-making clearer. So to this day, I have previous bosses and supervisors who were great leaders in some cases who probably don't realize that I, I declined a nomination for an award primarily because I knew they were going to ask me to write the award and I didn't want to. I didn't think it was appropriate and I wasn't going to compromise my own value simply for a shot at winning an award, however good that recognition might have looked on my record. I did that more than once. I've done it recently. And in some cases, most cases, I was able to avoid the uncomfortable conversation by simply saying, well, I don't, I don't really deserve it, sir, ma'am. I think somebody else deserves it instead of me. So I'm not coming, I'm not telling you this story to make you think I'm high and mighty and amazing. 
because I'm not. But I, I tell the story because if you know what you stand for, the decision is easy. For me to decline an award nomination, like for some people to walk through that might seem like a gut-wrenching idea because the award might go onto your record and then that might look better when you get to a promotion or to a new travel opportunity or the company is looking to ask you to take on more responsibility and hey, they, they won this award and they won this award. And by the time it gets to that point, right? Nobody knows the difference. Nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody knows who submitted it. Doesn't matter. So I get it. That, that can be a hard place to sit mentally. But for me, that decision was simple. It was easy because I knew what I stood for. Leading with integrity means something to me. And in my case, that's what it means. What do you stand for? What are the values that mean most to you? The number one thing that you need to do to be an effective leader is to be certain about what you stand for. The other thing that brings to mind leading with integrity is what happens when you and the company come to an impasse on an ethical dilemma. I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine the other day, and we agreed invariably for all of us, any of us who work in a large organization or a large company, if you're there, if you're there a few years, it's most likely you are going to run into some sort of dilemma where you, you have to pick between what the company implies is important versus what your team needs from you. What does the company say matters? What does your team need? Or what matters to your team? Those can be gut-wrenching decisions, particularly if making a decision between the team and the company is also putting your job at risk. And I don't want to downplay that. I know that type of thing exists out there, and I don't want to come out and say, you know, this is easy. It's, it's a no-brainer. No, I know it's not. These are big decisions. These are big life decisions sometimes. But if you know what you stand for, if your values, if you are, are behind what you stand for and your values provide a solid foundation, it's not that the decisions aren't important, but they become easier to make. You become more confident making them. And at the end of the day, you don't regret the decision you made. If you choose the team over the company and the company takes it out on you, at the very least, you did what you were supposed to do for the team. You did what you needed to do for the team. The number one thing is to get straight on what you stand for. The number two is to identify the skills that matter for you and your team and throw away everything else. So back to nuclear ops, this is, this is a world that is still recent to me and close to my heart. We spent a lot of time training procedures and processes. And even in my last job where I did a lot of student administration and uh, degree audits and that kind of stuff, I worked at a university. For new staff members, we spent a lot of time walking through all the website protocols, 
right? And how you interfaced with the registrar system and the transcript system and how you pulled up student grades. And if you wanted to enter, you know, a student advising report or a counseling report, this is how you do it. Click these buttons, blah, blah, blah. We spent very little time by comparison talking about when and why you would counsel or advise a student, how you approach a student who comes into your office crying, who comes into your office super excited, who comes into your office expecting one answer, you have to give them the other, and then they're going to end up possibly crying or super angry or scared or nervous. We, we spent very little time talking about how to connect with a student. For the most part, I was working with 19 and 20 year olds, 18, 19, 20 year olds. I'm 35. Prior to this job, I spent most of my time teaching and training uh, young military officers, anywhere from 22 to 30 or so, kind of a long, kind of a wide range, but even the difference between graduating college, going through their technical training and getting to their first assignment in the Air Force, that's a big jump. So for the most part, by the time that I met trainees, quote unquote, you know, people I was talking with in a classroom or in a simulator, people I was training in my primary job, they had lived some life. Some of them were married. Some of them had kids, multiple kids. Many of them had worked different jobs. Many of them had graduated, entered the Air Force, then had to work a job in between until they went active duty and started to get paid. They've learned how to find a, an apartment to rent or a house to buy. They had to buy a car. They had to buy a sofa. They had to figure out how to cook dinner for themselves, right? These things sound trivial. And if you're my age or older, perhaps they sound trivial. But having watched it firsthand, for a 21-year-old who lived at home, went to college, and lived in the dorms on campus, some of that stuff is absolutely mind-blowing. So to bring it back home, to bring it back to my conversation with these students, I knew it would be a jump to go from 25, 30-year-olds to college kids, 18, 19, 20. And I, I acknowledged it. I, I spent time thinking about what that jump would be like, but I got almost no training, no help, no discussion about how you connect to those people. How do you connect to these people? How do you connect to an 18-year-old who sees you in a particular light too, right? The, the folks, the airmen that I worked with in my previous jobs, yes, I was older than they were, senior to them. I had a position of authority, but I also was able to get them to a place where they could call me out and be honest with me. That's what I wanted. I needed them to see me as a peer. And, and our relationship was much stronger when we reacted to each other as peers. When I got to the university, I wasn't even allowed to do that. The rules governing my position prohibited me from that. I couldn't use first names. They, they definitely couldn't use my first name or nickname or call sign. So there's already a barrier there. So how do I connect with somebody in this environment? The skill of communicating to someone like that, that is a core skill that I needed. But instead, most of the training I got was on websites and what buttons to click and what web pages to pull up 
and what metrics to put into the advising report when it came time to do it. Not how do I have a conversation with an 18-year-old sitting in my office in tears about family stress, work stress, school stress. They're 3,000 miles from home and it's Christmas time and they can't get home. Doesn't matter the example. So the number two thing you can do to be an effective leader is to get rid of the nonsense. The website, the checklists, the processes, every checklist or process I ever learned in the Air Force and not in the Air Force. Doesn't matter what job I ever did. And I'll bet in your case, it doesn't matter what job either. The checklists you can figure out simply by reading. If you've got the core skills in place. If you know what's important and you know what you stand for, figuring out those skills becomes way simpler. So if you know that what matters most is leading with integrity and investing in each and every one of your students, making sure your students see in you the type of leader, the type of mentor, the type of teacher you want them to be, then you'll behave that way. And that behavior will rely on the core skills that you need to train, not just for yourself, but for your team. Leading with integrity matters. I believe leadership is about building your replacement. So when I approached my students, what I cared about most was communicating with them in a way that I wish I had received when I was in their shoes. How do I connect with them in a way that's most effective, that's empathetic, that gets the message across in a way that they can receive it and still process it even after the emotion has subsided? That's a hard thing to do. And I had to figure it out on the fly because I didn't get much training on it. And I'm not sitting here trying to blame anybody else. But my point is to lead effectively, to lead effectively. After you figured out what matters to you most, what are the values you stand by? What are the values the organization stands by? After that is to identify the core skills your team needs. How do you communicate and connect with others? How do you prioritize tasks that are coming at you from different sources? How do you manage multiple stakeholders when you're making a big decision? Right? When I was in Wyoming, I was, a, I was a flight commander, which means I was a supervisor of five others, but this team of five were all senior experienced people. We were basically peers, except that on paper, I was their supervisor, but we talked to each other as peers. They called me out like a peer, and it was really a great working relationship. But one of the tasks that I had to let go of and passed to one of them was scheduling. For 65 people plus five instructors, simulator rides every month, trying to coordinate everybody going into monthly classroom sessions, um, bi-monthly simulator sessions, trying to coordinate senior leadership, visiting the unit to go into training. They're not here every month, though, so... 
working them in every three months, then they're going to go to a different unit. So now I have to work with another scheduler. I could have spent time talking with my scheduler and I had multiple over a period of three years, right? But I could have spent time talking with this person about how to click the buttons in the scheduling software. But I spent zero time doing that. If, if they needed help with the software, they got it from someone else. We had people who knew that software up, down, left, and right. If they needed help with that software, they got it from someone else. My job was to help them understand how do you balance all these people with interests in what you're doing to make the best decision. That's hard. That's, that's a discussion that the scheduler and I needed to have. And that is training that I owed that person. Because what mattered? We wanted to be transparent and honest with our unit. Well, that means any scheduling decision we make must account for everyone's concern and must be explainable. It's not going to make everyone happy. That's not the point. The point is we have to be able to defend it. To be open and transparent is to be able to defend your decisions. So what, what did we spend the most time on? This is how you balance this unit's interest with that one. This is how you assign priorities. These people matter a little bit less because they have more time to get the event done versus these people. Yes, it looks unfair to prioritize this senior leader, but their schedule is way tighter. So if you want to give them some priority, you can. It's very hard to measure how you apply that skill because you can't measure how happy all your stakeholders are, but it's absolutely crucial to train and practice that skill. That's what you spend your effort on. The core skills that matter and really defining what skill is. Skill is not your ability to click buttons on a website. It is not your ability to follow a checklist. But it is your ability to perform something, to perform a behavior that produces a result or an outcome. And maybe it seems like I'm splitting hairs, but we spend so much time worrying about checklists and processes Ask this person this question, follow the script, follow the checklist, follow the process. But what's the core skill? What is that thing that if you do it right, everything else falls into place later? What is that one thing? If I connect with my student the right way, the advising report just happens later. I'll figure out what to write in there later because I'm, I'm competent enough to write a paragraph, click a couple buttons and load it into the program. If I balance our three units and my boss and your boss's interests and priorities and limitations, I will build the schedule that meets everyone's needs as best I can. All the clicking comes later. Hopefully I see, hopefully you see where I'm coming from. The number one thing to be an effective leader, get your priorities in order, figure out what matters most to you. The second thing is dispense with all the crap, dispense with the nonsense, 
and focus on the core skills that matter. Because the other thing that does, by the way, is it prevents you from becoming a micromanaging taskmaster, which I think I mentioned at the beginning, right? If you focus on the core skills and are set on what matters to you, it puts you in a position where you can't be a micromanaging taskmaster because you haven't presented them with the individual steps. You've presented them with the core skills. These are the things you need to think about. These are the things that if you do these well, everything else falls into place. But none of this works without the third step. And this is one in particular that I had to have a, a close mentor of mine remind me of uh, when I was in the thick of it, so to speak, when I was um, back in Wyoming, trying to do everything myself with a staff, with a flight, a group of people, five super competent, highly motivated peers staring at me, probably bored out of their minds, asking me, what else can I do? It's, it's not like they weren't prompting me. They were asking me, what else can I do? And my boss pulls me in and he's like, Arun, you got to let go. And what's my response? I'm, I'm rationalizing, of course. And I try to justify myself. And I say, well, I got I to gotta train them more. I gotta, there's got to be something else I got to give them. And, and then he asked me, he calls me out and he says, well, do you not trust them? And I said, well, I, of course I do. But deep down in, in the recesses of your mind, right? Did I have a trust problem? Maybe, probably. Because culturally, traditionally, any small mistake could get you into trouble. Perfection was the standard. And even though we had gotten ourselves past that, we hadn't really gotten ourselves past that. And looking back, I know for sure it was a trust issue. Not because any of those five instructors I work with worked with had done anything wrong. Absolutely not. They were all super confident, super competent and confident, highly motivated and ready to help and ready to take ownership. But I didn't let them. My boss looked at me point blank and said, you won't feel comfortable until you let go. And the first time you do it, it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's not going to feel good. But it gets easier the more you do it. And you'd be, you'll be amazed at what happens after you do. They want to take ownership and they want to do something. They want to be a part of this. So I just described scheduling, 65 operators, five of us in the instructor job, working all these training events, plus 200 some odd other people kind of hovering around who are affected by the schedule we make. I was doing that every month. I walked out of that office. I walked right into the office I shared with three other people. And the, the, the senior individual who worked for me, she was the senior among five. I looked at her and I said, you're going to take over this thing starting next month. And we were maybe a week away from the next month. So I didn't exactly give her a whole lot of time. But she looked at me and she said, awesome. What do I need to do? So that moment taught me two things. First off, she was ready and she wanted to take ownership. I should say she was ready to take ownership. She was excited to be a part of, of the bigger picture, right? To be involved. Because all I was doing was scheduling all these people and then asking someone to validate, quote unquote, my work. 
which is garbage, right? I'm going to do all this stuff. I screwed stuff up every month because I couldn't do it all. They would fix my mistakes. And then I did it all over again. So the first thing I learned was she was ready. And every single person in that unit, in that section, in my section was ready to take ownership. The second thing, what did she say? Awesome. Tell me what I need to do. I hadn't prepared her though. So she picked it up, right? Made some mistakes, all of which were my responsibility. Because ultimately that core skill I talked about before, managing stakeholders, I had not prepared her well for. She learned it on the fly. We learned about it together. Her replacement did far better than she did. And then the replacement after that, even better. And on the cycle goes. The third thing that you have to do to become an effective leader is to get the hell out of the way. Let go. It is one of the toughest things to do if you're in a supervisor's position, if you're in what we call middle management, maybe you have other managers looking up at you or you've got senior company leadership looking down on you for results. You've got people breathing down your neck or you feel like you're under pressure because you're you're bringing home a, a big outcome for the bottom line or whatever, whatever the goal is you're reaching for, the toughest thing to do can be to let go of control. To simply say to whoever, to John Doe, I'll just use that generic name, right? John, we need to make this happen and we've got two weeks. I think you're the one for it. What questions do you have? Maybe they have questions. Maybe they don't. If, if you and your team know what you stand for, and if you as the leader have presented to them, demonstrated for them, and assessed their core skill set, then there's nothing else to do but get out of the way and let them go do. It is the hardest thing to do in a supervisory position, but it is the most critical thing to do. So I've spent way longer than I planned walking through this model. What, what I just outlined for you and what I just went on tangent after tangent about is the teach, train, lead model. I've been working on this model for the better part of two years, refining it sanding down the edges, writing about it, sharing about it, talking about it, not just to present it to you and to the world, but to also refine my own thinking. We, we think better and we refine our thoughts by talking through stuff and writing about stuff. That's, that's true for most people. Try it, by the way, when you get the chance next. If you're really trying to work through a problem, start writing about it and see what happens. So I've spent the better part of two years talking about this. And so when I say that this coaching program is two years in the making, that's what I mean. Now, as I went through these different tangents and these stories from my past, maybe you might be sitting there thinking, well, I know you said you were going to simplify it, but I don't, I don't, that seemed to make it worse. That was not my intention. Everything comes back to three steps. 
get your priorities in order. What do you stand for? Make better decisions, right? Making better decisions ultimately relies on you and your team's skill set. If the core skills are trained and assessed properly, you're going to make better decisions because you're not going to sit there muddling over constantly who should do what, who do I need to ask for help, how many times do I need to follow up, do I need to come, come back with status reports, none of that stuff. You'll make better decisions on how to use your team, on how to develop your team, on what your team needs. What matters most? Make better decisions by focusing on core skills. And then number three, get out of the way. This is what provides the core, the framework of the Enabled Leader Program. It is a one-on-one -on -one coaching program designed to help you level up as a leader and be the leader who is enabling your teammates but is not standing in their way. So why am I providing this now? Why am I coming to the world with this now? Because not just because we tend to make leadership sound complicated, and I don't believe it has to be, but because I've seen too many people suffer at the, at the hands of bad leaders. And more often than not, a bad leader, quote unquote, is not a bad person, right? If, if, if this has been you, if you've made poor decisions as a leader, I've made poor decisions as a leader. Right, I tried to do everything and kept my people in the dark. I, I had trust issues and was keeping people in the dark because of it. I, I've made poor decisions as much as anyone else has. So being a bad leader isn't because you're being a bad person, but perhaps you don't have a framework that's supporting better decision-making, that's supporting prioritization, right? Simplifying the tasks in front of you so that you can simplify your life and simplify the approach you take with your team. I got into this because too many people suffer at the hands of leaders that are complicating it for no reason because they're under too much pressure or they think they've got too much to do when the reality is most of what you think you have to do probably isn't important. But you don't have a filtering mechanism for it. You don't have a framework to test against and say, is this in line with my values, with the organization's values? Is it something that my team can do as part of its core skill set? If the answer to those questions is no, then what are you doing it for? Maybe it's related to something you should be doing. Maybe it's busy work that you added from a meeting because it sounded good or your boss thought it sounded good. But maybe what you really have to do is go tell your boss, hey, this, this is not appropriate for us, or this is way low on the food chain. We'll get to it, but it, it may take us a week or two. It's not important right now. If, if that's you, if that's where you've been before, or that's where you are now, then you're someone that I want to help. I've had plenty of those tough conversations with bosses back in the day. And the conversations don't necessarily get easier but you get much stronger and much more capable of having them. If you know what you stand for, you know what the organization stands for, you know what your team's core skills are. That conversation 
is vital to have, and you will be ready for it if you can answer those questions. Enabled Leader is a coaching program, eight or 12 weeks in length. And, and after we talk on a discovery call, we get a better idea of what fits best for you, where I will not only take you through the teach, train, lead steps, and you will get training on this model, but we will implement the model together week by week. So you will take a step out of the model, answer some questions. We will meet weekly, uh, virtually on a Zoom call or a Google Meet call. We will talk through your experience from the past week. What did it look like to implement this action step? How did you feel about it? What feedback did you get from your team, from your peers, from your bosses? If we have to adjust something, we'll adjust. We won't move on to the next action step until you're ready. So even though I say eight to 12 weeks, it's all going to be tailored to you and your experience. How quickly you're able to progress is going to be based on how well you can implement the steps and what additional feedback you need. But my goal is to put you in a position where all of the extraneous junk is thrown away for good. And you know what is important, what skills matter most, and you are ready to get out of your team's way. That's Enabled Leader. Leaders of Influence is a group program, nominally eight weeks, designed around a similar construct, but it also makes use of some of the resources we have as uh, John Maxwell team members. Uh, as a certified coach with the John Maxwell team, I have access to um, different coaching and training resources that the company has built uh, in addition to facilitation guides and, and workbooks and things that I can give to you uh, at no cost to you to help you work through the processes, not just the ones that I've built, but that the John Maxwell company has built over time based on John Maxwell's 40 plus years of experience teaching, talking, and writing about leadership. The Leaders of Influence program will go through a book study and will also include a weekly check-in with the group and one-on-one -on -one time with me to implement the lessons, not just out of the book, but to align them with the teach, train, lead model, to put you in a position where you are having the conversations that matter most with your team that matter most with your supervisors, that matter most with your peers and your family members, and, your, and, and that get the most done, and that push the ball forward down the field the farthest. So I know I spent a whole lot of time on enabled leader and almost no time on leaders of influence, and that is not, that is not meant to be, that's not intentional. I'm not I'm not doing that to say that leaders of influence doesn't matter and enabled leader matters way more. The, the reason I'm offering these two different programs at the same time is because I know that everyone reacts differently to different environments, uh, to different training, to different types of coaching. And so for, for some people, leaders of influence the group program is going to be better because yes, you and I may click in a one-on-one -on -one environment, but where you really get the most value is going to be connecting with your peers, connecting with leaders from all other spaces to share stories, 
to share lessons learned and to, and to get some perspective, right? Because it happens to all of us in every industry. It's really easy to be talking with a peer, with a friend who does what you do, and the assumptions are the same, which means the solutions mostly sound the same. But as a military person, I get, I get tons of new ideas and tons of in inspiration, frankly, from talking to people in healthcare, school teachers, business people, um, athletics, leaders in athletics, sports coaches, right? People who are in industries totally unlike mine can still teach me a ton. That's the benefit of a group program. Enabled Leader, by contrast, the one-on-one -on -one program, it still connects you to a community through Facebook. You'll still have an opportunity. You'll have lifetime access to quarterly masterminds that we run with everyone who's a part of the Enabled Leader community. So you're still getting connection. You're still getting a group of peers of like-minded leaders where you can still share those stories and those struggles. But Enabled Leader is focused on you individually. So the training is different, the conversations are different, and the way we implement together looks different. April 1st, 2021, today is launch day. I am super excited for this. Um, it, it's been a long time coming, and uh, I, I really believe in this work and um, hope to see you on a call soon. Coaching.enabledlead, E-N-A-B-L-E-D-L-E-A-D. -E dot com coaching.enabledlead.com is the website scroll through for information and at any point click the button to book a call uh, it's a 30-minute discovery call and i will answer every single question you've got i've got nothing to hide i've got nothing to dance around about i'll tell you exactly what this program can do and can't do and we'll decide together if the program if either program is a good fit for you uh, april 1st today is launch day and we're open for enrollment May 1st is our target date to start the first cohort of both programs. So um, the first few who sign up for Enabled Leader and for Leaders of Influence, we'll have books and materials sent out to everybody by May 1st, and we'll be ready to go in a month. So it, it may sound quick, but at the end of the day, if you're ready to level up, uh, one day is too late to wait. So um, head to the website. Keep following us on social media. Join the community at enabledword.com. There's still a link to subscribe to our newsletter. The website itself is getting a redesign. So if it looks a little tired, uh, that is my fault. I'm working on it. But in the meantime, click the subscribe link in the top right, and you will be the first to get updates as far as programs coming in the future, uh, updates to the programs we're currently running, and anything else that we're thinking about in a, in a given week. Um, thanks for joining us on the last question. Hopefully that gave you some insight into where I'm coming from, what I'm thinking about, and why I built Enabled Leader the way I did. Book a call. That's really all I can say. If you want to know more about this program, if you are curious about whether this program is going to be useful for you, if you've got questions about it, book a call, and I'll do my best to answer them all. And then at the end of the day, You'll make the best decision that you can for you, for your team, for your family, and for your time. Until next time, this is the last question where we ask important questions to build better leader, leaders so that those leaders can go build better futures. 
Hope you have a great rest of the week and weekend. We'll see you Monday for Lead Your Week, Monday Meditation, and then check out our episode release next week. Take care, stay safe, lead well.